Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. All right, kiddos, I'm going to give you the real notes before the sermon, which is I'm told that there's snacks in the foyer when the sermon gets a little boring. Guys, just go find some donuts and stuff, and thanks to the families who provided that for our graduates. Um, you guys, after the service, we want you to take a few minutes out here in the lobby. There's, there's picture boards that are set up of all of our graduating seniors. Super, super proud of all of you guys. If you don't mind, just uh, take a little bit of time, go through those, congratulate our seniors, maybe drop a little card in there and join with them with, uh, with some snacks and all those fun things that we'll do after the service. It'll be a really great time and want to encourage you to do that. Also, if you did graduate, uh, just understand that uh, one, you, we are lifelong learners throughout all of life. Uh, you guys made it through high school. Great. Keep going strong through college. Uh, God is calling you to study. He's calling you to get a great education. Most of us, whether you do that by going to the military, by learning a trade, or by going off to college and learning there, be the best representative of Christ that you can be and work hard at your studies. And um, you will not regret that time that you have. So, so please do that. And parents, if you need some help for me reinforcing those kind of things, just let me know. And we'll use sermons to do it. Really quick, want to mention one thing about Samuel Fantoni, my man, dropping the Bible, state champion, track runner here for the mile this year, which is really, really cool. Um, yeah, if you guys, what was the, uh, what was the time? 540? 442 for the mile. For the mile? For 800. For the mile. Holy smokes. You ran a mile in 442. Man. Okay, so I'm not going to be running with, uh, with Samuel anytime soon. Amazing stuff. Uh, last thing I did want to mention, wasn't here last week at a marriage retreat with Family Life that Hal and Charlotte put on out at New Life Ranch, just did a great job. And I wasn't able to mention that John and Judy Eshelman celebrated 50 years wedding anniversary this last week. <laughs> Guys are in the back. Congratulations on 50 years. It's an amazing accomplishment. So proud of you guys too. And thank you so much for, for being a part of TBC and our ministries here. I think that's all I've got to start. All right, so let's pray as we, uh, we turn to God's word. Father in heaven, again, just thank you so much for your goodness and your love to us, Lord. We thank you for the rain this week. You continue to shower us with blessings and shower us with the grace that we have because of Christ and his death on the cross. And so we thank you most of all for who you are, God, and what you've done in our lives. I pray that your, uh, your work of redeeming our hearts and um, transforming us more and more into the image of your son would be evident in our lives, uh, that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel message with people that need it so desperately. We do pray for these families, for these kids that are uh, graduating and moving on this summer, for our, our sixth graders that are moving up to the, to the junior high ministry, for junior high guys that are moving up to high school, Lord. Um, each of them have, have achieved something just great, and, and we pray that they would keep going strong, and most of all, that they would know you, that they would learn about you, that they would develop a deep personal relationship with you through your word. Uh, after all is said and done, Lord, we pray that TBC would be a, 
a healthy environment for our families to grow into a knowledge of who you are and what you are doing, not only in our lives, but across the world in the expansion of your kingdom. Lord, we praise, uh, we look at Galatians this morning that, that you would uh, speak to each of us in a, a very special way, that you'd reveal truth to us, that our lives would be changed because of it. And we ask all of this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 this morning. I have this uh, reoccurring nightmare that I often experience at night. And actually, if you would ask my wife Brandy, she would tell you that uh, there's nothing that she would want to do more in our marriage than before her head hits the pillow every night and we go to sleep and, and we call it a day. That she would have a, a football NFL helmet that she could put on her head with the greatest padding and the state-of-the-art technology that would stop me from injuring her in my sleep with my arms because of these nightmares that I often experience. So I have this reoccurring nightmare, and it goes something like this. I'm uh, graduating at college at Mississippi State University. Everybody in the College of Business is standing up with all their regalia and getting this diploma that they passed to you, this, this uh, Bachelor's of Business Administration degree. And, and it's all tied with a bow around it, and I'm at the end of the alphabet. My last name is Verweel, and so they get up to me. At the very end, I walk across the stage, and there is no degree being passed to me. And it turns out that I went all that time through, I got all the regalia, signed up for the graduation, and I forgot to complete one freshman entry-level class. I know, terrible. It's a nightmare an exceedingly great nightmare, and it happens to me. I don't know why, but it happens to me over and over again. But, but really, wouldn't it be terrible if that actually happened to you? How, how would you handle it if you worked so hard to achieve something, you got so close to the finish line, and everything was going right for you, and all of a sudden you get to this climactic moment, and you realize you've just fallen short of it. Do you know... Uh, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, it was September 22nd. The proclamation didn't come into effect until January 1st of 1863. We made the 13th Amendment, ratified the 13th Amendment to the Constitution on January 1st, two years later, 1865. And there were actually uh, slaves in the United States who from the time that the Emancipation Proclamation was written and given by Abraham Lincoln to that moment in time after the 13th Amendment was ratified and they still didn't know that they were free? Imagine that as the greatest nightmare you could ever experience. Imagine working so hard to get to one level and not even realizing that you were liberated that you are completely free. Uh, a very similar thing happens in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter three, the believers were free. They were free from the condemnation and from the curse of the law, but instead of celebrating their liberation, instead of realizing that they had been emancipated, they went back to the slavery of the law. Willingly, they went backwards. Uh, so far we've covered Two major sections 
in the book of Galatians. We've talked about the mark of the gospel and the minister of the gospel. And, and we just finished this section. It's been a little bit of time. So I want to go back and, and just kind of recollect where we've been in Galatians before we move forward to this next section in Galatians that starts in chapter 3. And, and when Paul talked about being a minister of the gospel, he said that he had authority from God that was derived from him. It was delegated, but it was also given to him. He was called to be an apostle from God. And it meant that his authority was God's authority. God delegated it to him. And I hope you can understand how important this is for pastors and for church leaders, especially even today. Paul did not gain his authority the way that the world gains authority today or the way that the religious leaders gained authority in the past. He gained his authority from God as a gift. He wasn't going to get his authority by pleasing people, by grabbing for power, or by, by playing politics. Paul was an apostle that climbed the corporate ladder of the church. He didn't rub shoulders with the powers that be in order to develop and to convince people of his authority. He was simply a Pharisee whose heart was drastically transformed by the miraculous grace of God, who gave him a calling then to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now we're going to shift to the, to the next major section in Galatians, talk about the mark of the gospel, the minister of the gospel. And, and this is by far one of the most doctrinal sections in this book that encapsulates the message of the gospel. We're going from the minister of the gospel to the message of the gospel. And it's almost as if this emancipation proclamation is happening all over again. Have you guys ever had a, heard of Juneteenth? Texas, the state of Texas, celebrates June 19th as the day that the slaves finally were told that they were free in 1965, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was given. The Galatian believers were free. The cross of Jesus was their Emancipation Proclamation. They were no longer enslaved. They were no longer under the curse of the law. But this, in Galatians chapter 3, is one of the worst cases of gospel amnesia that you will read throughout all of the New Testament. Although Christ was their greatest hope, they had shifted their hope now to the law and away from Christ. Although he was their greatest identity and their source of significance in relationship, now they were shifting that identity to their ability to carry out the law. And just like an addict goes back to the slavery of their addiction, over and over again, the Galatian believers were in relapse. They went backwards in the gospel, and they willingly chose the slavery of the law over freedom in Christ. And by the way, this is far from being just a first century Galatians problem. This is actually a 21st century modern church problem. How many of you guys out there, just a universal issue here, how many of you struggle with anger in your life from time to time? Some, some people are honest, other people, you know, there's, there's people who um, pick their nose and there's people who admit that they pick their nose kind of thing. All of us have sins that we struggle with. You know what most uh, counselors and psychologists will tell you? if you struggle with anger, they're probably gonna give you something like 10 tips to better anger management. And here's how it goes. I want you to think really carefully before you speak. Did you exercise today? 
to get your stress levels out, that would probably help you with your anger issues. You know what you need to do is just before you get anger, angry and before you show your temper is just take a time out. Remove yourself from the room and then come back later. In case after case, day by day, people buy into the lie that in order to deal with your problems, here's what you need to do. Try harder. Dig down deep. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a better person. And all you have done in that case is you have made yourself a functional savior in your life. You have turned away from God as savior and you have turned to your own efforts and your self-help means to save you from your deepest problems. Going back to the law is not a first century Galatians problem. It is a 21st century sin problem where human beings actually believe that they have the capacity to deal with their sin in their own power and in their own ability. How can we as true believers in Jesus Christ stop from this? How can we, how can we prevent ourselves from going through this gospel relapse and turning back to our own efforts? Number one, and number one in your outline. We must learn to distinguish between good news and good advice. As believers in Jesus Christ, as mature followers of Jesus Christ, we must distinguish between that which is good news and that which is good advice. Look down at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Read through verse 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just like I'm, I'm shocked when I read about Juneteenth and the Emancipation Proclamation, Paul was shocked when he heard about what was going on with the Galatian believers, going back to the law. So he just starts unloading and lobbing rhetorical question after rhetorical question to them and, and enabling them to just think about it, not even allowing them to answer, just question after question. There's actually four of them. The first one is this. Who has bewitched you? The New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Bible, the Worldview Bible that the, the youth kids got, it says this, who has cast a spell on you? Paul confronted the Galatians with an idea that they had been hypnotized by black magic, like they had drunk a poisonous potion from these false teachers who were against his gospel message. And whether this is a literal spiritual description of, of darkness and spiritual forces that entered into the life of the Galatians, or whether it's just a, a metaphorical description, we all know who's responsible for what took place in Galatia with those, with those believers. It's the same false teachers from chapter one that were preaching a gospel contrary to the gospel that Paul taught. It's the same brothers who secretly were brought in in Galatia to spy out their liberty and their freedom that they have in Christ from chapter 2. And just like the media will spin the news today, the Galatians were being duped by spin doctors, 
teaching them and telling them to go back to the law and that that was a favorable disposition and way to live their life. The first question is this, do you realize that you are being duped? Do you realize that this is all smoke and mirrors and nothing could be more antithetical to the gospel than turning back to your own efforts and back to the law? Second question is found in in verse two and and it's actually, I'm gonna handle verse two and verse five because the question is almost the exact same in those two verses. ESV says this, let me ask you only this, and here's what that means. Answer me just one thing, Galatian believers. I just have one thing that I wanna ask you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or did you receive it by hearing with faith? And again, I just wanna to, want to say congrats to all of our grads today. I'm, I'm proud of you for reaching this milestone in your life and in your education. But if we compared Israel to a student, in terms of graduating from the law, they never made it past the eighth grade. Israel never made it into their high school years. Year after year, they failed. And here's what you have from Genesis all the way through Malachi, they simply repeat the same lesson and fail the same test over and over and over again. In fact, the only way that they will ever graduate from the law, the only way that they will master it, is if God does something completely different than any of their own efforts and abilities. The only way that they will ever master the law is if God sends his Holy Spirit into their hearts and gives them a brand new heart. Uh, we read about this in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 31. Upon faith in Christ as a believer, you are regenerated, you are indwelled, you are baptized, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion and we will gain the inheritance as children and sons of daughters of God in the heavenly places. One day, the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we might fulfill the righteous demands of the law, not because of our efforts, but because of what Christ has done for us. He was the one who was perfectly obedient to the law. He gives us his spirit so that we might fulfill it by walking in the spirit, not by walking according to the flesh. Third question, look down at verse three. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Just like works and faith were compared in verse two, now spirit and flesh are compared in verse three. And Paul uses flesh in a very technical sense. And I wanna be, be careful to define some terms here. When Paul uses the word flesh, here's what he means. It means all of our human nature in its fallen estate. Our flesh is the things that we look to to live and trust in our own strength and our own ability to follow after God and to do what he has commanded. And so here's what he's saying by asking this question. Salvation in Christ does not start one way and end in another. Believers don't start in the spirit and end in the flesh. This is not God did his part and now you pick up and you do your part. This is God does it all from start to finish. This is his work. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so we walk and we depend in the Holy Spirit because this is a gospel of good news. It is not good advice. 
This is not God telling us what to do. This is God telling us what he has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Finally, there's a fourth question. Look down at verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And Paul likely refers to the suffering and the persecution of, of Christians in the early church and in Rome's futile attempt to quell Christianity. One of the worst things that any evangelical church can ever do is to confuse the law with the gospel. One of the worst things that any church could ever do in practice, in philosophy, in teaching, in application is to confuse the law with the gospel. And yet, it happens all of the time in churches. Make no mistake, most churches, most pastors begin the gospel very correctly. You begin with the Spirit. This is all about God's grace. This is a, a gift of salvation that comes to you through Christ. But then they add to it. Then all of a sudden it becomes, now that you're a believer, here's what we want you to do. Follow these steps. Check these boxes. Do these things. We sign on the dotted line with our faith in the gospel, and then we read about all the fine print that's below it. That's the stuff that we have to adjust our lives to and conform to. Because of that, Christians find themselves in a spiritual equivalent to a midlife crisis. AKA, here's what it is. Try harder next time. God has saved you. Just try harder. Whether it's the Mosaic law or good advice, doing something is what the gospel becomes all about, and I hear it way too often. The central message of Christianity is not works or law. The word that Paul uses to describe the central message of Christianity is called the gospel. And the gospel is a word that means good news. Typically, the gospel in the first century would have been associated with a military victory, a messenger, a herald comes back from the field of battle and he announces that their army was victorious. Their people had won the battle and everybody can celebrate. The messenger's job is to get the story right, to tell it accurately and correctly. But you will get the story wrong every single time when you confuse the good news with good advice, when you confuse faith with the law. When you add things to it, whether it's on the front side or the back side, it doesn't matter. The gospel becomes confused when we shift grace and go to works of the law. Instead of reporting the news, what I hear in churches is, is we become the news. Our lives become the news. Instead of telling people what Jesus has done, the assumed gospel is, look what I have done. Look what I've accomplished. All of a sudden, the focus becomes about what we do rather than about what Christ has done for us on Calvary. I love uh, what Michael Horton says. He's got a book, Christless Christianity, and I've uh, used liberally from it for this sermon. Here's what he says. Much of our ministry today in churches is law without gospel, exhortation without news, instructions without an announcement, deeds without creeds, with the accent on what would Jesus do rather than what has Jesus done. In order to stop ourselves from going back into the law and to our own self-efforts, 
In order to stop from going into a gospel relapse in our hearts and in our lives, we must distinguish the good news from good advice. They are drastically opposed to one another. Number two, we worship Jesus as Savior, not life coach. We worship Jesus as Savior, not life coach. Now, I played a lot of sports in high school, and I loved playing sports. My parents' philosophy was, if Jared's involved in sports, he won't be involved in all this other riffraff that we don't want him to get involved with. And I had some great coaches. And here's what all of my coaches became experts in. All of my coaches were great at the commands. All my coaches were great at telling me what to do. In football, here's what it sounded like. Keep your head up and wrap up, Verwheel. In basketball, it was keep your elbow in, use your legs, flex your knees. In golf, it was turn your hips. We've got Ethan's playing baseball right now. Keep your eye on the ball. Watch the ball. Hit the bat. Imperative, command after command. Square your shoulders when you go through the hole. See what's in front of you. All of my coaches were experts at telling me what to do. They were fond of using imperatives, not necessarily indicatives. And even in the church, even in the church, we're fond of using the imperatives much more than the indicatives. Jesus sounds more like a life coach with commands, not a savior with a promise. When we get the gospel wrong, Jesus will sound a lot more like a life coach with commands rather than a savior with a promise. After all, if you are not happy, perhaps you've fallen out of God's blessing. Are you following in the footsteps of a victorious Christian? Have you been praying enough? Have you been reading enough? Have you been giving enough? Have you been tithing enough? Have you shown up enough? Have you been witnessing enough? Have you been loving enough? Have you been doing enough? And all of these commands function only to deepen our self-righteousness and our spiritual depression when it's all said and done. What's difficult is the subtlety. Uh, churches will often emphasize discipleship over doctrine, living for the kingdom rather than worshiping the king who was crucified. The prosperity gospel is all about having your best life now and what you need to do to experience and to walk in it and to live in it. We easily forget that we are Christians, not because we think we can walk in Jesus' footsteps, but because he is the only one who can carry us. Look at Galatians uh, verse six here, chapter three. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice how Paul emphasizes the indicatives, not the imperatives. Verse 6, here's what he says. Here's one indicative. Abraham believed God and he was credited at, with righteousness. Abraham was now righteous. That was his standing, his position, and his identity. The indicative tells us that he has been declared righteous by God because of his faith in Christ, not because of any of his actions. Verse 7, the second indicative says, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. This indicative tells us that whose family we are in, 
who we are related to, who we are aligned with. Both verses 8 and 9 say that in Abraham, believers are blessed. And that's the third indicative. This indicative tells us that we are considered faithfully obedient to God's law rather than being objects of covenant curse, even though we have violated it. That we become objects of God's blessing rather than objects of the curse because he took the curse out on Jesus. I want you to pay special attention to verse 8. Look back at verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And it begs the question, the gospel before what? What was the gospel? When did, when did the promise come before? What is before? And the answer is really simple. The gospel to Abraham came before the law. The gospel to Abraham came before Moses, not after. Why is Abraham the father of all who believe? Because the Gentiles, Abraham was uh, related to and in fact looked upon as a Gentile in the faith. This is before Moses. This is before the law was given. Hundreds of years before Moses, the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 15 was given to him so that through him all the nations, not only Israel, but all the nations would be blessed. Genesis 15 is well before Exodus chapter 20. The gospel starts with the promise. It's not a principle, it's not a performance, it's not a philosophy. The gospel begins with a promise that creates a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is this uh, third person of the Trinity that takes us through life and associates us with God, that all the promises would be fulfilled through Christ and worked through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The law given to Moses hundreds of years after Abraham does not invalidate the promise that was given beforehand to him. And so how do we stop from gospel relapse? How do we stop from going back to the law? Number one, we make sure to distinguish between good news and good advice. But number two, we see Jesus as savior with a promise, not life coach with commands. He gives us the indicatives well before we get the imperatives. He tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. Number three in your outline, number three this morning. How do we stop from gospel relapse? Understand God's law as commands, not suggestions. You have to understand God's law as commands from God, not just suggestions from God. Look down at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall, be, shall live by them. Now if Abraham brought blessing, then we would say Moses brought curses. Anyone who attempts to live by the law is under a curse because ultimately none of us can do it. And so what Paul's doing is he's picking up a verse from Deuteronomy in, in the margins of your Bible. What you need to do is write down Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. And that is the end of the list of curses that Moses gives to the people of Israel before they cross into the promised land. And here's what he says. If you don't do all these laws, if you don't do every one of them without exception, here's the deal. You're guilty of all of them. Paul's argument goes something like this. 
Number one, those who don't do everything required by the law are cursed. Number two, nobody does everything required by the law because we're sinful. We can't carry it out on our own. Number three, therefore, those who are of the works of the law are ultimately cursed. You know what James 2.10 says? It's a really good verse in the New Testament to reaffirm this. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point of it is guilty of all of it. The Apostle Paul was doing pretty good with the 10. Remember that? And he finally got to the end of the list, you shall not covet, and he says, oh my goodness. Now I'm guilty of all of it, without exception. All of us need a fresh encounter with the commands of God on a regular basis to keep us from falling back into the law. Let's say that again. Every one of us needs a fresh encounter with the strict, hard, deadly commands of God on a regular basis to remind us of who we are and who God is and what he's done for us. When the Israelites heard God speak the law first on Mount Sinai, do you know what they did? They trembled with fear. When God spoke the law, when he thundered upon them with a voice of a thousand trumpets, they were terrified. And here's what they said to Moses. Moses, you go up and talk to that God. We can't handle even hearing from him down below. So they sent Moses up as a representative to speak to God for them because if God was going to continue to speak and give his commands, none of them would survive. The law demanded blood sacrifices on a daily basis. It assumed that a blood sacrifice was needed for sin of the people. Not if you're going to sin, but when you sin, by the way, here's the blood that's going to be shed to cover that sin on a daily basis at the temple and the tabernacle. The law doesn't offer assistance to wayward souls. The law doesn't give you advice and coaching for living. The commandments assure a certain condemnation upon you, and that condemnation is death. You have broken the law of God. The commandments did not come to encourage, edify, or coach you to victory. They came to kill you and to remind you of how much you desperately need God to end the domain of sin at its very core, namely the pride of self-confidence and self-assurance that you can carry out the law in your own power. You cannot do it. And so here's what we needed. We need somebody to come in who could bear the penalty and who could take on the law for us. One who would be cursed himself because even though he righteously and perfectly carried out the law, he was punished as if he didn't. He took upon our curse for us. Look down in, in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Michael Horton puts it this way. The commandments did not come to encourage, edify, or coach. They came to kill. Jesus came to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law. He came to give life instead. I'm, I'm fascinated. Um, I have a, a, a preoccupation with uh, thinking about sermons and preaching 
and, and I often look at other sermons, I often listen to other sermons and what I'm hearing from pulpits. Uh, famous pastors, churches across America. It started way back in seminary. And, and here's what I want to kind of anchor on just as we close. The answer to bad law preaching. People, people preach just dig down, you can do it. Dig down deep and, and figure it out. Try harder. The answer to bad law preaching is not to dismiss the teaching of the law, it's actually to teach the law harder and more often. What people are giving you in churches today, whether it's moralism or, or therapy or, or some kind of form of feel better about yourself, is a soft form of legalism where they are looking to a law, their own abilities to save them instead of to the grace of Christ. But the answer to bad preaching of the law is not to do it less. It's actually to preach the law more. Um, some of you have, have seen the skit, this really old skit on Saturday Night Live with Dana Carey, uh, Carvey. You remember the church lady that, that he played? It was, it was so funny. And the church lady was always this uh, a spiritually elite uh, moralist. My life is better than your life, and so I'm just going to look down upon you and, and say all these good uh, vocabulary statements. Um, she always conducted herself with moral superiority because of the way that she lived her life. She was spiritually elite. But they balanced out the church lady with uh, the Stuart Smalley character. Remember that guy came up and he'd say, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, and God, doggone it, people love me. On a daily basis, this character would, would come up and say it. And people, people would compare the church lady to Stuart Smalley. Those two skits almost right next to each other is SNL's way to balance all that stuff out. Uh, and they saw the, um, Stuart Smalley's character as a, as a relief. Well, finally, somebody's gonna come in and, and not look down upon us and judge us out of their religiosity. People saw it as a, reflect, a refreshing shift from the legalistic church lady. I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, and people like me. Um, as if people could really be lawful and as if they could live their life in a way that would ultimately please God. Stuart Smalley's character was, was understood to be a, a good person. They live a lawful life. They don't hurt anybody, they don't kill anybody, they don't do any of the big tens, right? And over and over again, whether it's Joyce Meyer or Olstein or a prosperity preacher down the street, whatever it is, we hear sentiment toward Christianity. Um, people continue to say that Christianity is not a bunch of rules, and they are right when they say that. And then they follow it up with the essence of Christianity is, is to love God and to love others as you would love yourself. All you have to do in Christianity to be a good Christian is to love God and to love, honor, and love others. And John Calvin actually reacted to this in his institute's of Christian theology. And he responded to a Catholic theologian who said that very same thing during the time of the Reformation. You know what, at its core, Christianity is not about the rules, this Catholic uh, priest said. At its core, it's not about the rules, it's about loving God and it's about loving other people. And here's what Calvin said, as if that's any easier than carrying out all the rules. Try it, 
Try to love God and love other people for just one day. See how long it takes you to perfectly fulfill that righteous requirement of the law. And I'm always amazed at uh, how people try to make this huge distinction between the wrathful, judgmental, condemning God in the Old Testament and the gracious, kind, and gentle Savior Jesus in the New Testament. Because Jesus doesn't require us to fulfill the law to its perfection. And here's what they go to, and they, they say this, judge not lest ye be judged, they quote from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. And they forget everything else in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 that came before it. Because this is the same guy that said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder. I tell you, anybody who hates his brother is a murderer. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, any person who lusts after another person has already committed adultery with them in his heart. Does that sound like a gentle, kind God in the New Testament? Before singing, what a friend we have in Jesus, I always think about what Peter said, depart from me. (laughs) For I am a sinner standing in the presence of a holy, holy God. The commandments of God are not life's instruction manual. They are not. We shouldn't hear sermons about daring to be a Daniel. We should be hearing sermons about how Daniel came to his wit's end with his disciplined life of prayer, realizing how much he needed God on a daily basis to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. When a church's basic message has become less about Christ and more about us, we have functioned into a gospel relapse. And so here's what we need to do. We need to preach the gospel and preach the law harder. We need to show people how short they fall of the glory of God. And then we need to show them about Jesus who loved us and took the curse of the law for us and redeemed us by shedding his own blood on the cross. His death was sufficient as a final payment, not like the lambs who had to be sacrificed over and over again. His blood was a perfect atonement for sin, and it was once and for all. And when you align yourself to the one who became a curse for us, now all of a sudden you have the blessings, the same blessing that was given to Abraham the same blessing to all the nations that in him a redeemer would come. That redeemer was Jesus. And he gave his life for us on the cross. And so we preach the gospel. We kill with the law. We save with the gospel. Let's pray. Before I pray, uh, just so you guys know, there's gonna be some elders and previous elders, maybe some deacons up here on both sides of the stage. If you wanna visit With any of our church leaders, if you need to pray with somebody, please come up and find somebody. They'll pray with you. We also have some rooms in the back, and uh, we want you to use those and talk to people if you need be. All right. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessing of Jesus. I thank you that in him we have the blessing because of grace that overcomes the curse of the law. Lord, I pray that all of us would be able to look in our hearts and see where we constantly fall short as sinners and how much we desperately need the grace of God in our lives on a daily basis. 
I thank you that we are redeemed. Give us the ability in our Christian lives to walk faithfully with you, not under a new law and not under the old morality, but under the power of the Holy Spirit. And in his power, we will fulfill the demands of the law because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, I pray that this message of the gospel would land softly on hearts today and in every family at TBC. And thank you for our kids graduating. We thank you that our summer schedule is about to start here and, and transition into great ministries at TBC. We pray that you'd bless those efforts. Be with these families and with these uh, young men and women in a very special way. Help them to be strong lights for the gospel in a very dark world. Give them strength and courage to fight the evil one. We pray all of these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.